why I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy inspired word back to the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Um, we are moving in here to the, to the end of this chapter, which uh, provides a wonderful transition from what we have looked at so far into this next section uh, of, of chapters 4 through 6. So Ephesians, uh, like many of Paul's letters, are divided between two basic parts. There is what we call the indicative part, where, where Paul is explaining uh, who God is, uh, what God has done, who we are, uh, because of those things where he's expressing to us uh, these truths uh, that, that we are to cling to in order to, to understand who we are as God's people. And then the second half of this letter uh, then goes into, okay, so what are the different ways in which we live out this new identity of who we are in Jesus Christ? And so it, for, the, for the grammar nerds like me, what you'll find is in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there are no verbs that are in the imperative mood. Not one. The imperatives will start in chapter 4, verse 1. And then the majority of the verbs that you find in chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all in the imperative mood. So uh, that, that helps, uh, it helps us to, it, it makes figuring out the structure a lot easier uh, that Paul has done that for us. But as we come here to the end, uh, there is too much to try to, to deal with in one sermon. So I'm going to break this up into verses 14 through 19, which is in and of itself still too much. Uh, and then we'll cover the last couple of verses, uh, Lord willing, next week. The title of the sermon this morning is Filled with All the Fullness of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonderful provision you have given us within your creation that there are oceans that there are these large bodies of water in which we can stand at the shore and, and never see the end of it in terms of the horizon. And that in and of our, our own natural abilities, we can never swim deep enough to find the bottom. And that we are not strong enough to swim the breadth of it with, without needing help that you have provided us something like an ocean that does provide us such a beautiful picture of the immeasurable love of Jesus Christ 
the unending, eternal love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has been made new to us through your Son. And so help us today, O God, as as we listen to you in your word. Help us to, to let go of that natural tendency that we have of trying to dig wells for ourselves, which are only empty and are only broken, and instead help us to drink deeply from the living waters that freely and eternally flow from your throne of grace. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. How do we cultivate a worship, a discipleship, and a mission that is devoted to God and results in bold ministry while avoiding the trap of loveless orthodoxy? How do we cultivate a worship, a discipleship, and a mission that is devoted to God and results in bold ministry while avoiding the trap of loveless orthodoxy? It's not just a question that you and I need to answer. It is the question that the Ephesians need to figure out. What we know about the church in Ephesus, as we looked at so long ago, two years ago, not that we've been in Ephesians the whole time for those who are visiting. We took a break. But the church in Ephesus had experienced a powerful conversion to Jesus Christ, a very powerful conversion where they were drawn out of not just the darkness of sin, but the darkness of the magical arts, the darkness of the occult. They were drawn out of the darkness of living in in one of the cities that was devoted to a false god in which people from all over uh, the the known world at that time would come to to worship that false god. And their economy was set set up upon the worship of that false god. And the ethics of the culture were established on the basis of the worship of that false god. Everything about their existence came out of this idolatry. God had powerfully converted these believers in Ephesus out of that into Jesus Christ. And what we see from these uh, these believers in Ephesus, there is this immediate discipleship. There is this immediate devotion to the Lord and, and not just any kind of discipleship, not just any kind of devotion. It is cruciform. They take up their cross and follow Christ even to the detriment of themselves. As we know, they come under the persecution of their neighbors and of the government. They immediately go from a powerful conversion to a cross-shaped devotion that is expressed in a bold ministry that leads many to be converted out of darkness. It leads many to to sacrificially give up the things that they had been given their lives to, even to the point of financial hardship and persecution. This 
ministry in Ephesus, they had a special partnership with the Apostle That partnership, by the way, it continued even after Paul's passing. As one of the the next pastors of the church in Ephesus was, anybody know? Timothy. Paul's disciple, Timothy, uh, was a pastor there in in Ephesus. And eventually, uh, the apostle John also served. This is a very important church with, in regards to the, the unfolding of God's plan at this time. But what we know about, about uh, 30, 40 years later is that Jesus, through the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, sends a letter to the church in Ephesus and says, you guys have done a wonderful job of standing for truth, even at personal cost. But you've left your first love, and as a result, you're going to lose your witness. Because I'm going to take it from you, unless you repent. They were a church that had a powerful conversion, a a devotion to the Lord that was cross-shaped. They had a bold ministry in which they placed themselves at harm in order to, to bear witness Uh, to to the truth of Jesus Christ. And they were known for standing for truth. And yet, what they need is to figure out how to have that bold ministry and devotion in Jesus Christ without falling into the trap of loveless orthodoxy. Beloved, that is a question that that we need to continuously be setting before ourselves as well. As we noted at the end of the sermon last week, as you you look into like uh, verses uh, 12 and 13 uh, of Ephesians 3, there is this call for us as the church uh, to, to carry out this incredible privilege of being part of God's mission. We are to carry this out in God's power and not through our own. And that the only thing that stands in the way of our participating in the mission of God and his power is an inflated sense of your own self-importance. That you can put too much emphasis on your gifts. You can think, oh, I've got a lot of gifts, so I can do a lot of work. That's ministry out of the flesh. You might think, I don't have any gifts. So I'm I'm not going to get too involved because I don't really have much to offer. Both of those are expressions of pride. Both of those keep you from participating in what God is doing. And what they do is even when you do try to participate, you're doing it out of the flesh. And therefore, you are not carrying out this ministry in the boldness and confidence of Jesus Christ. How do we cultivate a worship, discipleship, and mission devoted to God, results in bold ministry, and yet avoids the trap of loveless orthodoxy? that is depending on the flesh. Well, Paul not only tells us, he models here in the rest of chapter 3. 
And what we see here is Paul bathing himself and bathing this church in prayer. And it's not just any prayer. It is a prayer that actively seeks out the blessing of God's presence and power in your individual life and in the life of this congregation. Notice here, Paul is once again praying. This is the third time in Ephesians that we have seen him pray. He notice here in verse 14, he notes, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And it is interesting to me here that instead of saying, okay, so here's what I pray for y'all. Instead, he describes it, not just in terms of an act of speaking to the Lord, but he expresses that act in terms of the physical and spiritual posture of what real prayer is. And that is bowing the knees before God. Do you know that in the Old Testament, the main word that is used for prayer that is often translated as prayer in the English is not the word prayer in Hebrew. It is the word bow. Because the physical posture of prayer is so connected to the spiritual reality that quite often to speak of prayer is they, instead of saying prayer, they say bow. I bow before the Lord. And that is because the physical act of bending the knee is a spiritual act of reverence. It is a spiritual, emotional, theological recognition of who God is and who I am, or when we're praying corporately, who God is and who we are. It is a recognition of His worth. It is a recognition of His position. It is a recognition of His Power. It is a recognition of his purposes. And so when you physically put yourself on your face before the Lord, you are placing yourself in a position that is recognizing who he is. Not just with words, not just with thoughts, but actually placing your body into a recognition of these things. It is an act of... of, um, Recognition of his worth. It is also, by the way, it is an act of voluntary defenselessness. If you are faced with an enemy, what's the last thing you want to do? You don't want to bow in front of them. You don't want to turn your back. But at least if you turn your back, what can you do? Well, some of y'all could run. I would just be like, yeah, go ahead. At least if you turn your back, you can run, right? What can you do bowed before someone to defend yourself? Nothing. We're voluntarily placing yourself in a position of defenselessness as an expression of a trust. 
When you are bowed before the Lord, you cannot run away, but you also cannot assert yourself. You can't flex, you can't strut, you can't show off when you are prostrate before God or anyone else. It is a willed submission that is vulnerable to the will of the one before whom you are bowing. Beloved, that is what prayer is. Yes, prayer will express itself in words, but make no mistake, it is expressing itself in spirit before you ever get there. And don't let, by the way, don't let the fact that the scripture often speaks of prayer in terms of bowing, don't think that that means that the significance of the bow is, is only caught up in the spiritual and attitudinal implications. If you find yourself struggling in your prayer life, bow, get on your unless you have really bad knees like I do then get on your face lay down get prostrate and allow the physical posture of the body to help you in terms of in your attitude and in your trust place yourselves in the hands of This is what prayer is. And so Paul here is once again praying for the Ephesians. He opened the letter with a prayer as he opened it with with a blessing to the Lord as, as he rehearses and he recounts all the extravagant grace of God in Christ. Summarized in that wonderful phrase that you and I in Christ have received every spiritual blessing of the heavenly places. And after he recounts and he rehearses uh, these, this extravagant grace from God, he, he then moves into a little bit of exposition about what that means for, for, for us as God's people. But then he goes into another prayer in chapter 1 where he is, he is asking the Lord, where he, it's a prayer of, that prayer of adoration goes into a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer for revelation, a prayer for wisdom, in which once again he asked the Lord to take the truth that Paul has just revealed, and he asked the Lord, take that, Lord, and put it on their hearts. And that's what he's doing here once again. As now he moves into this prayer for strengthening and filling. This is a prayer for power. Paul has just recounted this amazing reality that in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile have been drawn into one flesh in Christ. That there is therefore in Christ, there is not only salvation for you as individuals, there is a corporate reality of becoming the body of Christ. Or as he says, you are already being built into that eschatological temple that is coming in Revelation 21. Your existence in this world is an existence of the place of God's love and his grace and his truth in this world. And now what he's saying is, 
This is a privilege that we are given, not just for what we get from it, but from the privilege of what we have in giving it away. We are the temple presence of God in this world as a corporate body. The mission of Grace Covenant Church is to embrace, to experience, and to embody this gospel of Jesus Christ for one another and for everyone who is outside of these walls. But the way that we are going to engage in this privilege in a way in which we are, are serving out of the power of God and not ser simply serving out of a sense of our own gifts or talents or weaknesses or shortcomings. It is going to come as we bathe everything of who we are and what we are doing in prayer that asks for the blessing of God's presence and power. Because of the power of the gospel personal, because of the purposes of the gospel made known, because of the progressive nature of God's mission and work, everything that he has talked about in chapter 3 so far, because of the privilege and participation in God's work, Paul doesn't have a pity party about his uh, circumstances of being in prison. Instead, he exercises his union with Christ in continuing to minister for God as he prays for Christ's church. So what does Paul pray? First, notice, he prays that this church, he prays that we would be strengthened according to the riches of his glory. Now, by the way here, to be saying that he's praying for strength, he's not praying this uh, because he thinks that they are weak and therefore need to become strong. This idea of strength that is noted here, it has to do with the idea of vitality. It has the idea of, of, of growing in health. And if you have a, a baby that is born, that is a healthy baby, um, do you go, all right, well, everything's fine. Healthy birth, good to go. No, what do you want? You want that healthy baby to grow in health, to increase in vitality. You want that what has begun well to continue. And that is really what's going on here with the church in Ephesus. They have begun very well. So this prayer for strength isn't because they're weak. It's because there is always more of themselves to let go of, and there is always more of God to grab hold of. He prays that they would grow in vitality, that their faith, that their worship, that their discipleship and mission, that it would continue to grow in vigor growing in activity, growing in its, in its dynamic uh, ac activities, growing in intensity, growing in potency, growing in endurance. And so he prays that the Spirit would provide this in the inner man or the inner person. 
core of who you are in Jesus Christ. You need the Spirit to constantly sow God's power into your life so that your Christianity and so that the Christianity of this congregation is not based on health, honors, riches, vigor, beauty, influence. That's what the Bible calls the outer man. What he says is in the inner man. That core of who you are in Christ constantly has to be nourished and strengthened so that you grow more and more into who God already accepts you to be in Christ. And notice he says here that he wants them to be strengthened according to the riches of his glory. These are the riches of his glory that Paul just said we have the privilege of sharing with other people. Notice that, that earlier in chapter 3, he says that we have this amazing opportunity that we get to preach, we get to proclaim, we get to bear witness to the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. But he says here that as we are doing that, we are praying those riches into our own hearts. See, your proclamation and your prayers do not have different content. This is why I encourage you in sermons, but especially in counseling, You've got to be proclaiming the gospel to yourself and constantly renewing your identity and who you are in Christ because that's the power to then bear witness to those realities, to those who are outside of yourself. The same riches that we have received in Christ are the riches that we are bearing witness to Christ And we bear witness, beloved, to our own hearts first. The same riches continue to bolster God's servants, not just to create God's servants. And so look, prayer is not about getting in touch with yourself better. So often that is how prayer is is discussed, that it's getting to know the inner you better. And maybe you can, but what prayer is about is moving you away from the self-absorption of interpreting everything in light of what you are experiencing. Prayer is about giving you that, that um, that proper perspective that comes from seeing yourself and seeing this church and seeing the world through the lens of what God has said and what God is doing. Prayer moves us away from self-absorption. It moves us away from a preoccupation with ourselves, and it moves us into an, an, an attentiveness and responsiveness to God. Prayer is just as much teaching you about listening, about sensing, as it is about speaking. And so he wants us to do this so that he notice here that our hearts are filled with the indwelling Christ. Now, 
hold up, you spent all those sermons in chapter 1 talking about in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, telling us over and over and over that we're in Christ. So why does Paul here all of a sudden say pray this so that Christ, uh, so that your hearts are filled with the indwelling Christ? Because what he is referring to here is that the indwelling of the Christ, which is objectively true for everyone who uh, is, is trusting in him, becomes the subjective reality by which you do look at yourself, you look at this church, and look at the watching world. What he's talking about is developing a Christ consciousness, or what R.C. Sproul used to love to describe as living quorum Deo, living before the face of God. So that you are recognizing that every second of your day, regardless of what you are experiencing, you are experiencing that as someone raised, who's been made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That is the Christ consciousness in which the objecting and dwelling of Christ becomes the subjective interaction that you have with the indwelling Christ. Which, by the way, means... That living a prayerful life isn't just simply about sectioning out a couple of points during your, in your schedule during the day to sit down and have that prayer time. You certainly want to be doing that. But part of what Paul is saying here is that you are maturing and growing in living prayerfully. It's a spirit-anointed ministry, Paul says here is bolstered by Spirit-inspired praying. Spirit-anointed ministry is bolstered by Spirit-inspired praying, where we pray the proclamation of what we want to say to those outside. We are praying that into our own hearts. Now, what this means, beloved, is when we study the Scripture... We are not to be reading and studying for the sake of developing intellectually. We are doing these things to develop devotionally. Notice here that, not, that we are to be, that he wants us to be strengthened, not just according to the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be strengthened in the corporate apprehension of the all-encompassing reality of Christ's love. Notice that he is not just speaking to you as individuals, he is speaking to us as a congregation, that we with all the saints. And what is it that he wants? He wants us to have an interaction with God through his truth, that, that responds to what God's word and his truth is. It is living. It is active. His word is an expression of his presence. It's an expression of his power. And so what, what Paul is saying is, is what we are praying is that we are taking these things and, that we are, and we are asking the Spirit to drill them deep within our hearts. That we have the, the truth of God driven deeper and deeper and deeper into our souls. 
You see, when you don't interact with God's word as living and active, God speaking, something that is meant to change, something that you are to open yourself up to, something that you are to bow before as you accept it and as you make yourself vulnerable before God in Jesus Christ. You don't receive God's word that way. It can even harden you rather than bless you. And what can happen is your worship, your discipleship, your mission can come to be based upon intellectual curiosities that you get stimulated every now and then. It shapes the way that you go to Bible study. It shapes the way that you come to the service. It shapes the way you go to Sunday school. It shapes the way that you interact with, with, with fellowship when you guys go to college, whatever you do. If the faith comes down to having intellectual theological curiosities constantly being stimulated, or if it comes down to that, you know, to, for, for you to have had a successful time of reading the Bible or a successful Bible study or a successful that it comes down to you learning something that you didn't know, then you're not interacting with God uh, according to who he is and how he interacts with you. You don't have to come here and learn something new intellectually. You come here to have your preferences challenged in order to open yourself up more and more to God's presence and power. You don't come here to look for teaching that reinforces what you like, And you don't come here looking for something new and fancy. But in the Reformed world, how often is our our discipleship known for that? We think that if you learn something new, that that means you grew spiritually. Guess what? It doesn't mean that. It means you now have a new thing that you are responsible to to sink down into your heart and to ask the Lord for his help to, to express it more and more. But until you are doing that, that that tidbit of knowledge hasn't accomplished anything in you. Beloved, what Paul is saying here is got to pray. We have to pray this stuff into the depths of our hearts instead of playing around with theological curiosities, instead of playing around with, with interesting insights or a new way of seeing something. Guess what? When you approach things that way, you, become, you can become the most theologically sound church. But lose your love and therefore lose your witness. Whether you are proclaiming the truth to yourself or to another, it comes with the responsibility to first pray it into your heart and not just present it to your mind as something curious. Interestingly here, Paul says that what we are embracing is is not just simply um, information. He says we're trying to embrace a knowledge, uh, embrace truth that surpasses knowledge, he says here. And the word for knowledge, it basically means esoteric knowledge. Secret knowledge, special knowledge, that knowledge that only the real theologically committed are aware of. He says we are to 
to embrace the truth of Christ that surpasses that perspective. Because we are not in the business of trying to, to create uh, and to protect some secret knowledge that only the theologically co uh, committed have. What he is saying here is there is to be an experiential grasping of God's love in Christ. This is about perceiving. This is about discerning. This is about experiencing. So notice what he says. Roots that go deep. Uh, a love that is grounded. He uses a, a, a metaphor from nature. He uses a metaphor from architecture. But both are saying the same thing. If you want a tree to grow strong and tall and healthy, it can only do so if the roots go deeper and deeper and deeper. deeper. If you want a building to be able to be... Um, more than one floor and actually, you know, stay erect uh, given, you know, strong winds, storms, earthquakes. If you want that, what do, you, what do you have to do? You have to send a foundation deeper and deeper and deeper in the ground. And that is what Paul is saying. Pray this immeasurable love of Jesus Christ into your hearts. That is what is set before us. The love of Christ, he says, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. Let me put it to you another way. It's immeasurable. And it's all-encompassing. I believe we just sang about that. As if we are in this mighty ocean in which the love of God in Jesus Christ so thoroughly surrounds us that it becomes the new environment in which we exist. Our fellowship says, not just you as individuals, this fellowship is to be bathed in prayer that takes the truth of God in Jesus Christ and sinks it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Which means you have to stop trying to hew out cisterns for yourself. They are broken. And they are empty. Yet the eternal spring of the living waters of Christ are ever flowing. They are always there. See, in Christ, you don't have to dig something new. In Jesus Christ, you just plunge yourself deeper and deeper into those waters. Because look, the deeper that you get into those waters, the deeper that you get into the love of Christ as an individual and as a congregation, the more that we do this, the less we will find ourselves living in, being influenced by, depending upon anything that is outside of those waters. Beloved, what we have seen so far in Ephesians 
is that in Christ we exist as a household of extravagant grace. And what Paul tells us here is that we therefore pray in a household of exuberance in Christ. And we're going to talk about that exuberance, Lord willing, next Sunday. But for now, this week, I challenge you to ask yourself and to be honest. How do you interact with God's word when you read it by yourself? When you're at a Bible study somewhere? When you're right here? And where the word of God is going forth from this pulpit. Are you sitting there trying to evaluate it to see whether it's good or not? Or have you bowed yourself before it and asked the Lord and cried out to the Lord to teach you to embrace what he is revealing, to teach you to cherish what he is revealing, to teach you to to trust him in order to take a chance and embody what he is revealing? Are you crying out to him and asking for his presence and his power that you might be someone who expresses this truth to your heart, your neighbor, to all those who are watching, even as Paul reminded us last week that when we bear witness for Christ, we bear witness even to the spiritual powers and authorities that we do not see. How do we cultivate a a worship, a discipleship, and a mission that is devoted to God, results in bold ministry, but also avoids the trap of loveless orthodoxy? Beloved, it is an intercession that flows out of the immeasurable plentitude of God, freely accessed, freely experienced through the praying Christ who ever lives before the throne as our heavenly high priest. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we need you. It is so tempting to try to to follow you through the, the natural gifts that we have. And it's even easy to try to follow you through the spiritual giftings that you provide. But it is so easy to pursue these things by cutting you out of the process. Or, or, or by acknowledging that you're there, but not really depending upon you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a church that would interact with you and your truth as those who cry out for you to take it and make it real within us, even to the depths of our beings, so that the edifice of this church as expressed in the ministry of the means of grace, might indeed be a participation of and a presentation of the eternal glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.